0: There's just so much organizing that needs to be done. There's so many needs that need to be met. We need an institution that is there to protect our rights and that every kid in this country knows exists for them. There was this one time this kid being barred from wearing his articles of faith to school. And he was like, my lawyers are going to be here tomorrow. We didn't know the kid, but the kid knew us. He was referring to us when he was telling his administrator so assertively, like, no, this is my right. And lo and behold, the next day we were there in school with him to make sure that his rights weren't denied. And that's the feeling that every kid across this country should have pursuit of opportunity should not be based off of where we come from, the color of our skin, who we love, who our parents are, when we immigrated here. Like, that's just a human right to be able to progress and move forward. And so yeah, we should all have lawyers to back us up (laughs) when needed. My name is Sethjith Gore, and I'm a modern minority.
1: Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about all of you for all of us.
2: Sachit Kaur, the former executive director of the Sikh coalition, the largest Sikh civil rights organization in the United States. sachit has been involved with the Sikh coalition for more than a decade on the team, where she served as a leading organizer and activist, because the coalition provides direct support to Sikh communities across the country, responding to crises such as hate crimes, to organizing advocacy campaigns for Sikhism, to accurately be included in education, and and mobilizing Sikh civil engagement. Last year, Sachit was named as one of the 15 faith leaders to watch by the Center for American Progress. And why I was really excited to talk to Satchit is while we've talked to a lot of Asian folks and South Asian folks and Indian folks and Pakistani folks, we actually haven't talked to many people from the Sikh community. And what a lot of folks don't know is Sikhism is the fifth largest religion in the world. And more importantly, the work Satchit's doing at the Sikh coalition is, yes, about advancing Sikh awareness But it's also about advancing civil rights for all underrepresented communities. And it's just really powerful, interesting work. I don't know, Sharon, what'd you think?
1: I thought that her origin story was most fascinating to me. Like, I think something we have the privilege of doing is we've spoken to so many people and I've started to notice patterns and trends, how people grew up, some commonalities about how their parents viewed their own place in terms of culture or religion or being new to the country. And something that Satjeet mentioned is that she always felt a deep sense of pride for her own background, and her parents really helped her to embrace that while she was growing up, even though she, like many of our guests, were probably one of the very few Sikh families in her neighborhood. And I think that's really what has inspired the activism and the great work that she's been doing. It's been ingrained in her DNA, literally, and that has given her just so much internal power and confidence in showing up as her full self and being able to then inspire others to do so as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it's so ingrained in the faith and philosophy of Sikhism and to almost have this like outward nature of showing who you are whereas mm-hmm. a lot of us tend to hide it sometimes if we can and in Sikhism that's not as much always an option so we'll definitely put some links in the show notes to, because if you don't really understand what Sikhism is it's worth checking out and educating yourself a little bit more so I think you're really going to enjoy our chat with our new friend Satoshi Thank you for joining the pod. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you both. So, a, you're quasi-famous, infamous, but I guess the question we really want to know is, where are you from?
1: <laughs>
2: I'm from Jersey.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then do you usually get asked, well... But where are you really from?
0: <laughs> yeah, of course, I get asked where are you really from. And if I'm with someone that's South Asian, especially if they... are like
2: Connecticut, of course. Right. they
0: have a guess, if they have a guess, have a guess
2: <laughs> yeah,
0: of where I'm maybe from, they go Pechoketan. And that just means like, where are you from like back then? Uh, and so, yeah, my family all originates from Punjab, South Asia, and I'm a very proud Sikh Punjabi.
2: So... A lot of folks, and we'll dive into this later, given the nature of your work. But a lot of people don't know what Sikh means. It's the world's fifth largest religion. Can, in a nutshell, <laughs> how do you explain that to someone when someone's like, "What is that? I don't. I, I've heard Punjabi, like Bhangra and music, but what if they don't understand Sikh? What do you say to them?"
0: So the word Sikh actually means to learn. It refers to someone being a student, and like you said, Sikhism, or as we refer to the faith, Sikhi, is the world's fifth largest religion. And um, I think that's just an important fact, not because uh, populations are numbers games or races, but just from a recognizing how much more we really have to learn about other populations, other communities, and do a deep dive because if you're rattling off major world religions, oftentimes six isn't on someone's list of world religions that they know of. And so, to answer your question, key is really about this belief in one God and one divine that is just so central that it ensures that you have to have this faith in equality because as a Sikh, I fundamentally believe that the divine is the same for everyone, regardless of how you believe in the divine or don't believe in the divine. But Mm -hmm. I, as a Sikh, have to understand that we all come from the same divine. And if we all come from the same divine, who am I to call someone good? Or who am I to call someone bad? How am I to judge a race, a gender, or any of the categories or the divides that we as humans create? Because we all are a part of that one divine. And so... In Sikki, there is this real emphasis on this idea of quality and equity, on social justice, on standing up for others. Like I have a two and a half year old daughter, and like I'm trying to teach her some of these core concepts. And some of the things I am teaching her is like we're taught not to fear anyone, but we're also taught to help everyone, and and really making sure that that is central um, to our faith. And then. Oftentimes, we are seen as being very different, not just because, you know, of again, like the the ethnic or, or racial backgrounds of like a lot of Sikhs are from a South Asian background, but also because of the identity that we carry. Which, mm-hmm. if you follow the faith to a T, if you carry the identity, you have uncut hair, you have a turban, beard, there are articles of faith that you carry. And those are really supposed to be designed as our uniform. You know, in the beginning, you said you're famous um, slash infamous. And that is actually why we carry the uniform. Yeah. Because we yeah. should be seen as different because we should be held accountable to our beliefs. We should be held accountable to our values. And so growing up, my dad used to say this. He was like, and, and he this was also passed down to him. He's like, when you are noticeable, you're either going to be famous or infamous. Wow. Um, and... It's your choice on what you want to be. Um, Are you going to be remembered for the good or are you going to be remembered for um, the terrible things that you can choose to do? Um, And so really as a sick, those values that are so central to us, the way that we're held accountable to them is by our outward identity. It's like wearing your faith on your sleeve.
2: Or your head. (laughs) Or your
0: head. Exactly.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And so New Jersey is where you're from. What was it like growing up there? What was your community and your neighborhood like?
0: So I'm I'm from the more north part of Jersey, Union County, and specifically in the area that I grew up in, it was very much, uh, we didn't have much diversity Mm. when you just like looked at the school. I Mm -hmm. also went to a very, very small school. Our graduating class was like 150, 160 kids. Uh, And so- Uh, Not a very large school. And also, again, like when you're looking at the school and looking at the town, it didn't feel very diverse at all. I grew up a lot around a lot of white kids. And so there was a lot of times where it was like constantly making a decision of like how I wanted to present myself. Yeah. And also not having choices on how I wanted to present myself, right? So there are certain things that I can pick, like what I want to wear for picture day or for Halloween or what I want to do for a talent show. But there are certain parts of my identity I can't change at all. And so like, yeah, I had long hair, really long hair right from the beginning and it was clear I didn't cut it. And um, my mom would come in wearing Silvarkamises kameezes or traditional um, South Asian uh, dress and, like my dad had a turban and a beard, like there were parts of my identity you could never hide, even if I wanted to try, and so but I will say this, and the reason that I said that on the outside, if you're just like looking in, it didn't feel very diverse, like that is a hundred percent true. Mm-hmm. That being said, if you start peeling back the layers, you can actually see a lot of diversity because the intersection of race, religion gender identities and all of that like is very diverse. And so I will say that there were people that I was like, "Oh, wow, you have a really interesting background, but it required us peeling back the layers sometimes. So for some it's more obvious and for some it's not so obvious."
1: And when you talk about constantly making that decision of how you want to show up. I love how you said that. What were some decisions you remember making?
0: Um- so I never got into Halloween. I really never understood (laughs) Halloween. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, My parents didn't either. And my dad came like a very, very long time ago. And so he came in 1955, whereas my mom had come right before I was born. And... (laughs) I, I was just like no one wanted to spend the money on the Halloween costume no one cared about Halloween except like yeah you want candy <laughs> <laughs> and so and so I would just pull out a kameez or a lenga out of my closet and just dress up like a Punjabi princess like pretty much every Halloween. It was I- the time
2: you get to, got to like be your whole self
0: yeah and which is crazy right because it's like you're wearing a costume yeah. but it wasn't my costume because that's what i wore exactly. on weekends or to parties yeah, and stuff yeah, like that yeah, but like yeah, yeah, yeah exactly it was like one of the times that i got to show up as my whole self i would also can I think, ask a question about yeah, that really
2: quick of course because growing up i grew up hindu and boys very rarely actually did have to dress up for holidays except for like the big ones like the diwali function or whatever mm-hmm. but there was always i hate to call it a walk of shame but like we would host our big Diwali event at the big Baptist church that had an auditorium, right? Mm -hmm. And so my whole family is dressed up and we're walking out of the car across the street from a Walmart parking lot. And like people, it's like, there's this, as a kid, what trying to fit in. There's this, there was actually a never have I ever episode, right? Where the Diwali function or the Ganesh Puja uh, event is at the high school and all her friends see her in her full attire. Did you ever have those moments? Like, on Halloween, it's okay because someone else is dressed up like a Ghostbuster, and you're a "quote unquote" Indian princess. But did you ever have those moments, those weekend events, where you're wearing the outfit and you didn't?
0: Like maybe, it? <laughs> like honestly, maybe. And but I remember far more, especially as I got older, hmm. where I just didn't give a, uh yeah. and yeah, and, and 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 I think that's the part, right? And it's it is a privilege like and I, and I want to recognize that it, it is truly a privilege that like my parents somehow were able to instill that confidence in me um, and I felt it and it's something that I'm actively thinking about how I'm doing with my daughter now too because mm. yeah I want her to walk into Starbucks like if she's wearing a Punjabi suit and a brandy mm. which is like this long attachment to a braid. And if she's wearing it and she feels good about it, I don't want Mm -hmm. her to have that moment where she sees her dad picking her up from school and like is like scared or weirded out by it because he has a turban and a beard, which I have Mm -hmm. seen happen to other kids. Mm -hmm. And and so how do we get to that place is it's it's a constant conversation. And and if I think back to what my parents did, it's like my parents didn't make it a big deal for me to wear my Punjabi, my Sylvarkamese and like be a Punjabi princess or whatever. Mm, and even the word mm, princess mm. drives me crazy, but like yes. like she didn't even <laughs> like, it It didn't phase them or like my mom di- like didn't hide her silvar suit walking into school. Like I don't have a memory of her wearing like quote unquote American clothes or street clothes like to mm-hmm. a school and it doesn't bother me. Like it never bothered me. I also think my parents went out of their way to find ways to make, The culture, I don't want to be specific about the culture, right? Feel cool. And so Mm -hmm. I know like taking food into schools is like a big deal now, but back then it wasn't. And like she used to take SOG, so spinach, into school. Mm -hmm. And it was like the only time kids would eat spinach and like I, there were other kids, <laughs> parents That's would funny. call my mom and ask her like, how did you get my kids to eat spinach? Yeah, uh, Or like I used to take sugar cane and, yeah. and it was just like something that was like normalized um, through that. And it was made to be seen cool. And I know my experience isn't one that everyone shares, but that was my experience. My parents went out of their way to make it cool, and my parents also did things where it wasn't about the identity, or, like in a in a direct way. It was more in a passive way. So my dad's a scientist by background, and he used to come in, and again, like when schools would allow crazy things, they would just allow my dad to come in and do experiments with liquid nitrogen. And oh my god! That's in oh, elementary awesome. school, <laughs> so you have this turbaned beard guy that's acting like Bill Nye the Science Guy in school. And that was cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Like you, you basically like liquid nitrogen will t- turn a banana into a hammer, right? Like right. You know, that mm-hmm. stuff's just cool to little kids.
2: And so by, and by association, the guy delivering the science lesson is cool, regardless of what he looks like. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I don't know why you're on this podcast. We should be talking to your parents. They sound really yeah. hell- cool. I want to interview <laughs> them next. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I know it's interesting. Because of the first thing you said about Nsiki, the identity of literally wearing your identity outwardly, more Mm -hmm. so, like versus Hinduism, you can kind of hide. I hate to say you can hide a little. You can't hide out of your skin, right? Or your accent. But because that's already happening, that outward expression is so much part of the culture. it, It almost gives you as a kid permission to be out there and be your full self. And look, anytime I complain or feel some insecurity of culture and my daughter, or now my son as well, I really have to think back to like our parents actually had it harder and they were doing more like Mm -hmm. in a less forgiving time, right? Mm -hmm. Like now it isn't unusual because I saw it on Netflix once to see a woman in a sylvarkamy walk into a Starbucks that I don't know. That isn't my auntie. Like I think it's been normalized more and I have to remind myself that anytime I feel an insecurity, like it was harder back then and it's, it's getting more normal now. We're not there, but I think it's getting better or easier.
0: Yeah, we're definitely not there. And again, like my experience is a little bit different than other people's experiences. Mm -hmm. And I think it also matters where you are in the country, what your parents' immigration experience may be. Are you first generation, second generation, third generation? Like all of these things make such a big difference. Um, But I will say again, going back to where like what it was like for me and what it was like for my dad, particularly again, my dad came in 1955. And yeah, like he came over when he was just shy of turning 18. Uh, and so, one of the things that was said to him right before he left, just going back from like uh, the identity piece, right, it was like, I think it was his mom, so his mom's brother, that like put him in front of a mirror and was like, You see yourself now, this is how you come back. And wow,
2: and, wow, and yeah,
0: and, and it was just this thing, right, like, of like, it
2: was well, unpack that more. Why would she yeah. say that? Because I know why the Siddharjis are sorry, Sikh men leave the homeland and what changes what was she worried about well
0: like again it's 1955 like my dad just like he came over on a propeller jet like just to put it in like like Mm -hmm. an idea of like there were seven stops to come from india the lee specifically to the united states and Mm -hmm. they didn't know anyone here they didn't know Mm -hmm. a single soul here Mm -hmm. and this idea of like Are you going to have this feeling that in order to fit in or in order to find opportunities, in order to literally blend in, will you shed your identity, right? Like that was a Mm. real fear. And so for, again, my dad's mom, Mudgy, that's what he said. But my dad's dad, this is totally turning into a podcast about my dad, but he'll be so happy (laughs) when he hears this. Um, But my grandfather said to my dad, like my dad was sad about leaving, like worried, scared, all of those mixed feelings, right? And my grandfather picked up on it and Papaji asked my my dad, like, hey, are you worried? He was like, yeah, like, I just, I don't know anyone there. Like, what is it going to be like? Am I going to make it? Yada, yada, yada. And my grandfather turns around and is like, hey, do people live there? And my dad's like, what kind of question is that? Of course, people live there. And, and then Papaji goes, well, then 70% of your worries are over. And my dad's like, what do you mean? He was like, look, you need help. You go to the first person. If the first person doesn't help you, go to the second person. I guarantee you, if the second person doesn't help you, the third person will. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is we are more similar than we are different, right? We all have to eat. We all have to breathe. We need a roof over our heads. Like, everyone is more similar than they are different. And you just have to remember that. And don't get dissuaded if the first person doesn't help you or the second person doesn't help you. I, I promise the third person will. And so it's like, to your point, right? Like, our parents did have it. A lot harder in a lot of ways and they made it work and we have to learn from their strength and their resilience their strength and their resilience of like how they made it work
2: i and i do not want to diminish anything of the previous generation but because they did have it harder but they didn't have a choice like you're they, they made the choice to come here and once you're here you've got to figure it out like for us i feel like we can internalize be like oh well what about this what about that? i feel like my and i'm only speaking for myself like i get inside as a kid as an adult i get inside of my own head versus our parents had to make it work there was no option b we're here mm-hmm. it's a five-stop flight back to delhi or england or wherever <laughs> so there's this like there's a beauty in which your grandfather told your father but then this like tenacity and persistence of well i'm here I have to figure it out. Go ask the third person, go ask the fourth person, figure it out. I have to remind myself of that really often.
1: Yeah. That's really great advice. I actually wrote that down as you were talking and I'm like, I'm just going to remind myself that there's always going to be someone to help you always.
0: And I'll say this too, Roman, progress isn't easy, right? So the resilience Mm -hmm. and the tenacity that you're talking about, and then they had to figure it out. And then there's a real, yeah, we have to figure out other things too. And, and that's what progress is, right? And progress isn't necessarily easy, but that is what the previous generations, like my father, my mother, right? They're all looking at us for is like, how do we continue to progress? And that is also their legacy. And so that's the other part that I think about.
1: Yeah. What did your parents want you to be?
0: They wanted me to be... I wanted to be a doctor before I think they wanted me to be a doctor. <laughs>
1: wow. Um, you're like the model child.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Very much so. I was reading like the American physicians on like home or family, like diagnoses by the time I was like eight or nine, like that was my wow. reading. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm like really throwing, putting myself out there right now. That, um,
2: that is some nerd core stuff. Well wow. very,
0: <laughs> very, very pun intended, very nerd stuff. Um, and so I I think that was just ingrained in my parents and just like my life as a kid and things like that. Like it was very much like in and out of hospitals, doctors. And I just, that was my aspiration. And that Mm. aspiration just changed in college because I realized that there were a lot of doctors in our community already and there wasn't that much community organizing or mobilizing happening. And Mm. no one was really looking out for what folks in the community needed, and I was like, "Hey, maybe for a couple of years I can do that, and then I can always go back to being a doctor if it doesn't work out." So, yeah, I I took the hard left, but I put the dream of being a doctor in my parents' head before they put it in my parents' head.
2: Well, let's talk about that that moment when you said, "I'll do it for a couple of years." Uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> a couple, something <laughs> happened at a couple of years, and you went all in. Like I've already kind of talked about your position, but like you really went into advocacy and civil rights, not just for your community, but in some of the conversations you and I have in the past, like Mm -hmm. the work matters, not just for your community, by doing the work for your community. And it sounds intrinsic to your faith. Like you're doing it for all of us. Can you talk about what was that moment where you're like, oh, I need to go in. I need to go all in on this.
0: I don't think there was ever a particular moment. It's just moments build on top of moments. And Mm. I think the, the moment that I made the turn of like, hey, let me take a break and see if, this can work for me was when I was actually in in Punjab. It was the first time I'd gone back to Punjab to actually like study and not just be home to visit family and hang out and things like that. And in that moment, it was just like, there's just so much organizing that needs to be done here. There's so many needs that need to be met. And I just had the moment to have that introspection and to think about those things and so when I came back, I was working in a couple of internships. I had another job at another nonprofit and it was just like, huh, like maybe this is something I can actually do and make a life out of. And and then once I was at the Sick Coalition and I started working, like there's just there's story after countless story of this idea of like, hey, we need an institution that is there to protect our rights and that every kid in this country knows exists for them. Like literally there was this one time this kid told his administrators because he was being barred from wearing his articles of faith to school. And he was like, my lawyers are going to be here tomorrow to talk to you. Wow. We didn't know the kid, but the kid knew us. And he was referring to us when he was telling his administrators like so assertively, like, no, this is my right. And I have lawyers to back me up. And lo and behold, the next day we were there in school with him to make sure that his. Rights weren't denied. And that's the feeling that every kid across this country should have. Pursuit of opportunity here in the United States should not be based off of where we come from, the color of our skin, who we love, um, who our parents are, when we immigrated here, pieces of paper. Like, that's just a human right to be able to progress and move forward. And so, yeah we should all have lawyers to back us up (laughs) when needed
2: so I I do want to ask a question about there's there's kind of those individual moments for that young man you mentioned and then there's just kind of atrocious moments in our society specifically mm-hmm. against your community right so even outside of ours like you can think about what happened in india right in the 70s right during the state of emergency but in america post 9/11 Sikhs often get bucketed in post 9/11 anti muslim violence but then as recently as april 2021 the FedEx warehouse shooting like but even like smaller and bigger wins like the the story about Satari saying the MTA train conductor right mm-hmm. Like, how have you guys navigated those big moments? How were you equipped? How are, how are you reacting? What has been your response? Because it has not been an easy journey for the Sikh American, right? It, it's been a harder journey than for other ethnic or religious groups in this country because of the outward appearance and the, the confusion and the misperception of who you are, rightly or wrongly.
0: Yeah. And I, I think right off the bat, right, the, the hate that this community the Sikh community and other communities, right? Muslims, Mm -hmm. South Asians, Arabs, Mm -hmm. those to perceive to have this look that matches what people have made up in their minds to be that of a terrorist.
2: Hollywood hasn't helped, to be clear. Yeah.
0: It's a marker on our history, right? And it's a reminder that hate is prevalent through the decades. And it's a reality that many communities face. And I will also say as an organization um, and as a community, we've done our best to go above and beyond to mm-hmm. categorically say and unequivocally say we are not going to fall into this mistaken identity trap because that means that it is okay to attack another community. Another. Right. Mm-hmm. right. And yeah. it's a in it's a real detail to note, right? Because it is hard, right? When we are saying, like, hey, like, yeah, there is a difference between a Sikh and a Muslim, right? Like we're different communities, we believe in different things, all of that. But we will absolutely stand together and say, like, Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. you can't scapegoat anybody, you can't attack anybody. So yeah, I will say that it's just like making sure we stick by our values, um, even when times are super difficult. Now, your question about how we faced all these moments of crises, and what's equipped us to face those moments of crises, I think one is we don't have a choice. Right. So when 9 11 happened, the communities got hit in multiple ways. Like, I, I grew up around New York City. I had family that worked in the city. I had family that worked really close to the towers. And I was young, but like, I clearly remember like everyone scrambling to call people and make sure everyone was okay and could get back safely. I remember my sister in law was like waiting for my brother in law by the train station to get home. He was working in the city then too. And she saw another sick man walking home, because that was his daily thing, right? He walked back home in Long Island. She didn't know him. She's four foot ten, four foot eleven on a good day. Like she told him to get in the car. He was like, No, she was like, No, I'm gonna drive you. Like, it's not okay. And like he was like, No, I don't wanna bother you. She basically put him in the car because she Mm -hmm. was so worried about his safety. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you have people that are worried about people getting home. And making it home because, because no one knew who was going to make it home that day mm-hmm. and you also have people worried are they going to be attacked on the streets and that was the reality for many muslims many Sikhs, many south asians many arabs that day and so we weren't given a choice none of us were given a choice just like no asian americans in this response to COVID, like aren't given choices right like it is just what it is and we have to build the skill sets organize, learn our rights, understand how to be resilient and, and and be inspired by our history, right? Like we have ancestors, like you said, in the 70s and 80s that faced atrocities way worse and be inspired by all of that and be like, no, we're going to make it better, not just for ourselves, but for others. And that is going to be our North Star. That is what is going to guide us.
1: So talk to us a little bit about how this all started. What inspired all of the great work that you're doing today.
0: It's the community. It's the kid that's like, hey, my lawyers are going to be here tomorrow. Yeah, It's um, the families that despite, you know, Creek happened, uh, despite the fact that people still didn't even know what was going to be the outcome, how many people had, had been killed in that shooting. So this is when six were killed and attacked. At, a, at their Gordwara, at their place of worship in 2012 in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, and they were killed by a neo Nazi gunman. At that time, it was six, six, six killed. Mm-hmm. And since then, another one has succumbed to his injuries and passed since. Right. So, like, even on that day, like they still made longer. They still prepped the free meal, the free kitchen that is available every single day at Gordwara you, they still made it happen because service, protecting others is what comes first to the community. And so Hmm. when I think about what inspires us as an organization, what inspires me individually, it's this resilience. It's this just sheer strength that the community has, even in the face of adversity Yeah, and how they rally behind one another.
1: And do you have any kind of background in law or anything else? Like when I think about When I think about how each of us has probably been in a situation where we've heard about or even been bore witness to something happening in our community right in front of us, there's a part of us that feels the desire to jump in and help. And then I think, me, me personally, sometimes I feel like, well, am I qualified to do that? Do I know enough to be able to do that? Like, you wanted to originally be a doctor. You've had kind of different things, but like, besides helping the community, like, when did you find that moment where you What where you thought, I have a voice, I have the power, I can make a big difference, I can be a community organizer, I can be an activist in this space to make that difference for everybody?
0: So I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I work with lots of lawyers um, yeah. and we need both, right? You need people that specialize in different things and have different skill sets because that is what makes the puzzle whole. Mm-hmm. So I'll start there and I'd really encourage anyone that Wants to think about how to make a difference. Like you have the skill sets that it takes to raise your voice. You have the skill sets that it takes to make a difference. You just have to figure out what piece of the puzzle you are equipped to be and want to be. And that's different for different people. And it also changes at different stages of of an individual's life. But to your point about like the moment, Mm -hmm. again, like... Maybe it's just me. (laughs) Of like, there's been lots of micro moments or lots of different places where it's like, no, like my voice does matter and it can make a difference. And also, like our collective voice makes a difference. And so sometimes I think about my parents and uh, their stubbornness and yeah, um, their real stubbornness. And it's just like, yeah, like they had a voice then and and they made it work, right? Sometimes I think about. Like there was a moment I was traveling with my dad and this is when like TSA was putting like passengers into these glass boxes. And I remember being so angry with the TSA agent and my dad being nonchalant about the whole thing. Cause I'm like, everyone's looking at my dad being put into this glass box and that just justifies or reinforces something that they may be thinking. And I kept telling this. I was like, nothing happened. Like, why is he being put into a box? And they're like, oh, it's just protocol. It's just protocol. I'm like, there's no protocol that says this, right? Like you were given this random authority to be able to do this, but that's not how it should be. And it was just, again, interesting. And I, I think Hasan Minhaj had once said this, right? Like, like that for others has been a rite of passage where I'm like, no, nah, it's my right to be able to speak up. And it's not just because mm-hmm. I was born here. That shouldn't be what gave me this, right? It's because I have seen something that I don't think is right, uh, is unjust. And so, yeah, just really thinking about like those micro moments where like, yeah, maybe you or somebody else listening to this podcast has seen something and you raised your voice and you said something and just the act of you saying something was part of the resistance and that's where you start. And also a reminder that like we put people into office like we elect them. That is also our voice. We can organize, we can sign petitions. And social media has made things that much easier in some ways, right? Of like being able to raise our voices. Like we all have a much larger platform than we've ever been able to obtain before. And so like, what are you
2: going to do with all of that? So you guys have had some pretty significant wins. In the past few years, and one story we were reaching out that I saw on your YouTube channel, and it's, we'll put the link in the show notes, is the story of Satari Singh, which actually led to systemic change in our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about that for us?
0: Yeah. So Sathari so Singh Khalsa uh, was an MTA operator. He actually was driving, I believe it was the four or five uh, down so sub su-
2: subway train driver for a yeah, New York all City, City subway who... train driver.
0: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, when you're from this area, right? Like everyone revolves around this area. Yeah. Subway operator in New York City was driving the four or five trains downtown towards the World Trade Towers the day, like just his normal route on nine eleven. And he, however, learned of what was happening and reversed the train out and actually got his entire subway to safety. No one was injured or harmed in any way. And he did all of this wearing his turban, his beard like he did every single day. A couple of months or a couple of y- a year or two later, the MTA was basically said, "Hey, you need to wear a hat." They said this to him the MTA hat. And they said this to Muslim women wearing hijabs. Uh, they said no. Then they were like, all right, fine. You need to wear the MTA logo pinned to your turban and to your hijab. And you know, this is like this thing of like, that is an article of faith. Yeah. Not, yeah. if you spend enough time in New York city with subway operators, not everyone's wearing a hat. Most people aren't wearing MTA hats. Like it was just this thing, like they had to do this because For some reason, the turban and the hijabs had to be made felt more comfortable and like owned by the MTA in some way. Well, and Um, it feels like
2: the MTA almost thought we're trying to help you, but they were doing it the wrong way.
0: Yeah. And we can make assumptions about like where. Yeah, that's right, That's that's (laughs) right. But like, truthfully, it's like, hey, this is not even like this thing that like other people are even doing. Like if you look around, Mm -hmm. most people don't even wear their MTA hats. Right. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. and. There's nothing about this that needs to be commercialized uh, and justified in that way. And so we uh, took on that case and it took years. And this is the thing, right? Like the justice system in this country does take an insane amount of time. And when you have money, the idea is to wait out the underdog. It is to wait out the folks that don't have money and don't have resources. But as a community, we said, absolutely not. Are we not allowing this? And yeah, we will play the waiting game if that's what you want. And we we too waited them out and were resilient and persistent and stubborn, however you want to put it. It took about seven or eight years. And not only was that case settled favorably on behalf of of the Sikh and the Muslim community, but also it ended up leading to changes in New York City and now very recently in New York State, where workplace religious accommodations are much easier to come by than they ever were before
2: yeah i think there was like a senate bill and i think it was like 2019 maybe 2020 that literally prohibits discrimination on religious attire and grooming practices which is massive
0: yep and in new york city passed that back in 2011 i believe it was first wow and it was all coming out of these cases
2: yeah. What What's so interesting about that is it kind of sets precedent at the state level. My wife and I were literally talking about something completely different about like food disclosures and stuff. Mm-hmm. And she was like, Oh, that's because of California law. And it's complete apples and oranges difference. But it's like, these, these local city and state level victories mm-hmm. set precedents set example for what people can point to what people can look at either to copy 100%. Yeah, or in some case, like, okay, we'd better think about it because the ball is moving in this direction. So while it might seem isolated for this thing with the subway, with Sikhs and Muslims in attire, it has broad ranging applications or implications. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm just like so fascinated when I, when you hear of these stories, you start to be like, okay, this is how movements are built.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And if you think about it, right, who's making decisions on a daily basis for where you live in your local community or your family. It's your city councils. It is your school boards. It's your state school boards, right? Like, And if we look across the country right now, like the sweeping changes that are being made to our education system, it's real. And it's going to have, and those are places where not a lot of folks are involved, right? Because we're like, ah, it's a school board meeting. What's the big deal? Or it's a state school board meeting on curriculum. Like, what's the big deal? No, it's, It has huge ramifications on our communities, on our kids. It is going to determine what they learn and how their future is going to be shaped. And so we have to be in those rooms and we have to be lending our voice and leading those spaces to make sure that we are protecting, again, not just what happens in the here and now, but the implications it has on our future. Yeah.
1: If we were to turn back the clock completely, just completely going back to the past, to their New Jersey and what advice would you give to yourself?
3: Um,
0: Listen to your mom and you probably would have been at Harvard or Stanford. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I think you turned out okay. (laughs) Um, uh, I would say it is a hundred percent okay to be authentic Hmm. because in the future, that's actually what's going to make you go the furthest, being authentic to yourself, to your values, feeling good about the skin that you are in. It takes work. It's not necessarily easy, but that's actually why you will be celebrated in the future.
1: I love that advice. That's great.
2: So Sachit, I know we've only got a few more minutes to go. So I don't know, Sharon, what do you think? You think she's ready for speed round? Sachit, I think you are ready for speed round.
0: (laughs) I I highly (laughs) doubt that. I have not had enough coffee today that's the 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 actual
2: right answer everyone comes into this with like this false confidence i'm like no one's ready for speed no
0: no one's ever ready no
2: Sachi, what is something about you that surprises people
0: i don't think it surprises people that know me but i would like to say i'm a really good dancer when it comes to Punjabi like Bhangra Gita
1: oh that's fun Uh
0: so it'll surprise you it's just not going to surprise anyone that knows me right right (laughs) (laughs) it's great
1: what is a book, a movie, or a television show that has characters that you can relate to?
0: So I'm really into Punjabi movies, and a lot of them recently have been like they're dated, like in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and I'm like, that's the life that I would love to live right now. It just feels so much- <laughs> like
2: it's so hard. Why? Why? <laughs> because you break into song and dance randomly? <laughs>
0: Yeah, sure. It just feels (laughs) like it's really hard, but it just feels like it's just so hyper-focused on like the people just like right around you. And I'm like, oh, that's something I could handle right now.
2: (laughs) All right, all right. What's your favorite mom dish?
0: Okay, so I'm going to do my mother-in-law, who I live (laughs) with. Um,
2: Because she's in the next room and she's listening.
0: uh, (laughs) Yeah, so my mother-in-law makes really good sog, like really, really good sog against spinach. And the reason... Not to like take this into a different route, but my mom actually passed away when I was young. And my mm-hmm. mother-in-law's sog actually reminds me of my mom's sog. And just generally her cooking does. So I get very happy when she makes that. And when she makes metis mm-hmm. which is again, it's like a mm-hmm. dark spinach type mix into rupiah. Um, and both of them remind me of my mom's cooking. Mm-hmm. I know you didn't think it was going to go there, but that's where it went.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's beautiful. That's beautiful.
1: What is something that you don't like to eat?
0: I'm trying to get better about eating gurele, which is bitter gourd.
2: Yeah. Bitter melon's a real, like, polarizing thing on this podcast.
0: Yeah. That's, I think, like, I'm like trying because my father in law loves it. And we're going to try to actually grow that in the garden this year. So maybe this is the year I start liking it.
2: (laughs) The year of bitter melon. (laughs) Who's someone you'd like to talk to on a podcast?
0: So. Not to be boring. I actually need to find the patience to interview my dad because I really mm. want to record my dad's like stories and conversations. And so I feel like that would be a great way for me to do that. So yeah, not to be boring, but I- I'd pick
1: my
2: No, dad. man, I've. Uh, we should talk offline. I have so many thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> having having got those thoughts gone through my head.
0: Yeah,
2: he's done a lot with that.
1: Okay. What does being a modern minority mean to you?
0: It means making progress. So my daughter never even has to think of herself as a modern minority or my nieces or nephews.
1: That's beautiful.
2: 1,000%.
1: 1,000%, 1,000%.
2: Well, Sachi, thank you so much for making the time and for just doing the work that you guys are doing. And yeah, I hope we can stay in touch and find ways to nerd out and collaborate in the future.
0: 100% and thank you for doing this. It's an incredible platform and you all are raising your voices in more ways than you know. So thank you. The appreciation is mutual.
2: I've been Ramin Segal.
1: And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony.
2: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
1: We'll talk to you soon.
3: 18 plus.